our pastor, Steve, uh, who is still recovering, uh, I'm going to be speaking this morning on Ephesians chapter 1. I think as a congregation, though, we would be remiss uh, if we did not acknowledge we have lost uh, two members of our congregation in the past couple of weeks. For those of you who may be watching this morning, uh, either part of our congregation or just you joining us, uh, Dolores Reifinger went to be with the Lord, uh, as well as uh, Sarah Ann uh, Hobbs. And... Uh, I think it's a reminder to us of the brevity of this life. Uh, it is appropriate that we mourn uh, with them, and yet at the same time, they have a great hope. Uh, they are with the Lord now. Uh, they are communing with Him. Uh, they are where we will be one day if we're believers. And I think there's great consolation. We don't mourn as the world mourns. We certainly mourn. We, we're, we're, we're sad because... Uh, death is a, a terrible thing, but yet at the same time, we know both of these ladies uh, are communing with God now in his presence. The Bible reminds us uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I would just add this proviso for believers, not for unbelievers, but for believers. So this morning, I think I'd like to take just a moment for us to pray, and uh, we'll proceed with Ephesians chapter 1. Again, thank you for joining us this morning. Heavenly Father, we recognize that... Uh, this is a veil of tears that we occupy, uh, this side of heaven. We will never be satisfied completely until we are fully in your presence, and we're thankful that both Dolores and Sarah Ann this morning are with you. Uh, Lord, they are communing with you. They uh, do not suffer those woes and uh, illnesses that afflict all of us this side of heaven. And we thank you, Lord, that we can have full assurance but because they trusted you as their Lord and Savior, not because of anything they did, but because of what you did for them, that they and we have assurance of salvation and spending eternity with you. And I pray this morning for any who are listening to this message, if they have not come to a saving faith, your Holy Spirit would draw them, would convict them of their sin and their need for salvation, and that they can do nothing apart from believing. And even that believing is a gift from you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think if you've been a Christian long enough, at some point you've probably heard something to this effect. Love unites and doctrine divides. It's often uttered by, I would say, well-meaning people, even believers. Uh, but it's predicated upon an idea that we don't want to be divisive by teaching doctrine. Uh, while people may not say it, they may rely upon verses such as 1 John 13, or John 13, 34 and 35, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. They would say it doesn't say anything about doctrine there, it's about love. So Jesus himself says it, they would argue. And others would say, well, the greatest gift of all in 1 Corinthians 13 is love. So where does this idea of doctrine fit in? Well, my purpose this morning, in the brief time that I have, and I'm going to keep it relatively brief, my voice is struggling a little bit, uh, is that you may see in Ephesians 1 that love and theology or doctrine are not antagonistic, but they're complementary. And I'm hoping that you will see that this morning in this passage in my treatment of it. In fact, I'd like to suggest there's a connection between verse 1, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles. Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And in fact, uh, I've, I've, I've treated some of this chapter before, about four or five weeks ago from the pulpit, but I'd like to treat it a little differently this morning. 
to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul acknowledges that he's speaking to those who are faithful and are saints. Not exclusively just a certain number of people, but those who are believers. Every believer is a saint. We believe that as Protestant Christians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want, you, I want to ask you to do something. I'm going to break from verses 3 through 14 for a second. And I want you to go to verse 15. In English, we have things that are called conjunctive adverbs or transitions. I teach English at a Christian school, and I'm continually reminding my students of this. In verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So let me again read those two verses without the intervening verses from 3 to 14. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that's preceded by to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then listen to verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Well, Paul obviously is noting that there's something about these believers that their faithfulness, their love has been expressed in such a way that I've heard of it. And there's a temptation for us to think, well, look how, what super saints we have here. Look at what these people were doing. I think we do the text injustice if we don't look at the intervening verses of verses 3 through 14, because I think Paul's reason for hearing of their faith, hearing of their love, and being actually excited about that is because it's the expectation of one who has been saved that this will be logically what his or her life will be like and that we should exhibit these traits. But it's based upon, as Steve often is fond of talking about our pastor, the indicatives. Let's look back at verses 3 through 14 because the love and the faith that's expressed experientially by these believers, it's predicated upon what's already true in their lives and that's the theology. And I want to be careful here. I'm not just saying theology that people look at and say, okay, I agree with that. But a theology that's very organic, that, that people believe, and it makes a life transformation, a difference in their lives. If it's just something we believe and we say, okay, I believe that, we don't really biblically believe it. Believe means we're trusting in it, we're abiding in it, and God is using it to transform us in a very uh, real way. And, and honestly, everyone uh, is going to be different. Young believers, we're not going to expect the same degree of transformation as a mature believer, but there ought to be, uh, again, a trajectory that we're following. So listen to some of the things in verses 3 through 14 that should give us confidence that we too, like the believers here in Ephesians, should be expressing faith and love, that if Paul were in our midst, he would say, hey, I've heard of your faith and your love, but now why? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Look what he's done. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we, we could take that, 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 that forward dimension of that. I think I'm not going to explore all that here. But the point is, is that he has blessed us. It is God the Father and Lord Jesus who have blessed us, of course, in combination with the, the Holy Spirit as they are co-eternal. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think about that. We're chosen people. And chosen people, it would seem, would act differently, right? They would show love and faith, righteousness upon us. So we're not going to be perfect in this life, are we? We know that. But we are perfect in Christ positionally, so that our actions should 
to some degree, at least, replicate that. In love, he predestined us. Not only are we chosen, we're predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's purposeful. It's not accidental. It has been planned before time. It's an amazing thing to think about. I have an adopted sister. Uh, she is eight years my junior, and I consider her every bit my sister. She had, she had all the privileges. When my mom and dad passed, uh, she received part of the inheritance of, of what they left behind. And I would never have, uh, felt, I didn't feel bad about that because she's my real sister. Even though she's adopted, she's my sister, and sister in faith as well. So the point here is that we are adopted into the family of God. We're not born believers, but we are adopted to the family. Now think about that. If you're adopted into a family, one would think that there would be a similarity between he or she who is adopted and who adopts that person. Of course, that's our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father is perfect in love, perfect in all of his expressions, and we would think that we would, at least to some degree as believers, project that kind of life, right? The kind of qualities that God would have us have. But notice in verse 6, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. It's from grace from beginning to end. It's something we do not deserve. Grace is defined as the unmerited favor of God. It's not something we deserve. And yet, we have a reason to believe that it should result in a lifestyle that expresses what? Love and faithfulness with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. It's the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our, I love the old time word, trespasses. Sin certainly fits, but trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We have trespassed God's holy law, we have violated it, and he has given us forgiveness through Christ, who has become the sin offering for our sins. The riches of his grace are expressed here. Again, wouldn't we expect one who is part of the body of Christ, who has been predestined, has been chosen, has been uh, elected, has been redeemed, wouldn't it seem natural that that person would express faith and love, and as I hope to add later, also hope. And that triad is actually mentioned in 1 Corinthians as the three things that are everlasting or eternal, faith, love, and hope. And we'll get to that in a little bit. As we move through the passage, again, this is a, a very rich passage. We could spend so long on it, but I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, trying to hit the highlights here with you. Which he lavished upon us. The riches of his grace have been lavished upon us. When you think of lavished, I think of someone who just gives so generously to you, doesn't hold back, and God has given, he's lavished upon us his blessings, many of which I don't even think we understand in this side of eternity and which I believe that our sisters in the faith, Dolores and uh, Sarah Ann, are experiencing even now to a degree that we don't know. Uh, death is a terrible thing. We've mentioned this morning. But there's also the blessing of seeing our Savior face to face. Our culture doesn't think that's important. And naturally, we tend to fall in because no one talks about it. We don't talk about it as a blessing, so we fear it. But it's going to be a blessing beyond our wildest imagination, I believe. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. We don't know the full mystery of God's will yet, but we know one thing. There is purpose in this life. 
There are so many people that we encounter on a daily basis who do not have a purpose. And we wonder why their lives are in shambles. And apart from the grace of God, our lives could go the very same direction. But given purpose, given a purpose in life, God has given us that. He's called us to something higher. He's called us to glorify him. And that's a daily task of repenting, isn't it? Because we have our own kingdoms, we know that. And daily we have to put to death the old man or the old woman so that God can work through us. So it mentions the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What a blessing. Christ has come at the perfect time for us, and for eternity we're going to be worshiping the triune God. I hope to also see that you recognize that in this passage of verses 3 through 13, there's a Trinitarian part to this that we dare not overlook. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's precious above all things, but also there's God the Father, and as we're going to see in the next couple of verses, there's the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity who are working as cohorts to achieve our salvation, apply it as we're redeemed. In him we have obtained an inheritance in Christ, having been predestined. Again, there's that word, you can't avoid it. It's in the Bible. God has his purposes, and they shall not be thwarted. Predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Who among us is able to counsel God, none of us. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ Jesus might be the praise of his glory. Notice that recurring theme of to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. So if there is abiding love and abiding faith in our lives, that which the Apostle Paul here seems to say is readily evident in the Ephesian believers, it's not because of anything in us. It's because God has called us to his glory. That's not natural. Uh, I've heard people say, you know, if you, if you preach to people salvation by faith and you say it's not by works, they're going to go out and live any way they want. I think our response to that has to be, is a person with that mindset really transformed? Have they really repented and trusted Christ as their Savior? If they think it's just fire insurance and I can go out and live any way I want, to what gospel were you called? It certainly doesn't sound like a gospel to the glory of God. It sounds like a gospel to just get us out of trouble. All right? And I don't think that's the gospel that Paul was preaching, nor any of the other disciples, nor Christ himself. And then I love verse 13. It's always been one of my favorite verses. In him you also, second person, you also, listener, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the appositive there, gospel of salvation, is referring back to the word of truth. It's renaming and believed in him, this is the beauty of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. A seal can't be broken. It's, 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 it's the signet ring that's affixed to a, a document by the, the king saying this is authentic. You're, we're, we're, we're the authentic item if we're believers. And the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, that's strong language, the guarantee of our inheritance not something we just, well, we hope, but the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it, to the, again, to the praise of his glory. So is it, any, is it any reason to wonder why 
Paul is amazed at what he hears from the Ephesian believers. It's because of the fact that this is the manifesto of the Christian life. This is who we are as believers. And I think what he's saying here is, in effect, I have reason to expect this if you're truly a believer. If you have been, again, going back over some of the concepts, if you've been blessed with Christ, if you've been chosen, predestined, according to his will, to the praise of his glory, if you've been redeemed, if his, if his riches have been lavished upon you, if you have obtained an inheritance because of this predestination, if the Spirit of God abides in you, and I might add, this is the same Spirit on down the page it's mentioned. If I can reference uh, Ephesians 4, if you could go down to verse 19 and 20. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The Spirit raised Christ from the dead. And that is the same Spirit that's working in our lives to empower us. Not that we're God, we're not. But it's the same Spirit that's empowering us to live lives to glorify Him. And we're all going to do it imperfectly, we understand that. Now, look at verse 15. For this reason, that's the conjunctive adverb, the transition. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. But again, it's predicated upon everything that precedes it. All the indicatives, verses 3 through 14, all the things we've just talked about. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Not thanks to you, but thanks for you to the right source. That would be God. Because God has produced, the Trinitarian God that is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has produced this in the lives of believers. Remembering you in my prayers. Paul goes a step further. I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, here again, look at the Trinity, may give you the spirit of wisdom, the Father, Son, Spirit, all mentioned in the same sentence, and of revelation, the knowledge of him, which suggests that these same believers who are producing good works, who are producing faithfulness, they need an ongoing revelation of the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and of course that's inscripturated for us. We don't look somewhere else for that. We don't have to have some Gnostic knowledge where we have to grasp onto. But it does take a lifetime of study, doesn't it, to understand God's Word and understand more richly uh, what His Word is telling us. Uh, Paul even tells us in some places there are difficult things in Scripture. I don't think we need to shy away from that. There are hard things to understand. There are things I don't think we'll ever reconcile totally in our minds. So uh, it is an ongoing practice or exercise in becoming wiser through the revelation of Scripture. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Well, we had to have our, our hearts enlightened to be converted, first of all, right? We were in darkness, and the veil had to be removed. But I think on a continual basis, more and more that has to be removed from us so we become more spiritually mature so that you may know what it is, and here's the third beautiful part of Corinthians, the hope to which he has called you. We've seen faith, we've seen love mentioned in verses 15, now we see hope. And I think it's important that we contrast what hope is with what our culture tells us. I don't know about you, but I'm even guilty of using hope in this way. Well, I hope something happens. I, I hope this, this, this goes the way I want it to go. It's just natural we buy into our cultural baggage of the way words are used. That's not the biblical meaning of hope. Hope is a confident expectation, the same confident expectation that Dolores and Sarah Ann had, and hopefully each one of us 
also has, no pun intended, hopefully, okay? Uh, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's an amazing thing. God is so powerful and is working in us as believers according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, which is where he is now, the second person of the Trinity, the right hand of God intervening for us, our mediator, continually saying, look not at their sin, but look at what I've absorbed for them. He's our propitiation, isn't he? He has has placated God's righteous anger. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, all this is given Christ. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's our great hope. We're serving a God that's not just existent, wouldn't be God in this life, but for eternity. He has ever been. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You can't get your mind about, around that. The full Trinitarian expression of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three persons of God have been forever. There never was a beginning. There's never an end because if there were a beginning, the three persons of the Godhead would not be God. There would be something else that would have created them and they would not by, by that fact be God. But we can take full faith even though we can't understand it. We can't get our minds wrapped around it. It's much bigger. God is beyond time and space, isn't he? At the same time he's come, he came as a man to abide in the flesh and suffer affliction and suffer for us in this life that he he might identify with us. And the Bible tells us in um, Hebrews that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and even Christ was tempted but without sin. So he can identify with the travail that we experience. And he put all things, did God the Father, under his, the antecedent here for his, his would be Christ the Son, and gave him his head over all things to the church. And I would add also, one day when he returns, it's not just the church, but it's the entire existence he will have, and, and of course already does have command over, but it will be expressed fully in its fullness. Every knee is going to bow one day, right? Whether believer or unbeliever, the unbeliever will bow and say, wow, it was my choice, I decided not. I decided not to believe. I have no excuse because he's here, he's before me. And to the believer, the gracious hope that we have, will we be judged for our works? Absolutely, but not as those who are unbelievers. So we are called to abide and produce good works, not because it's anything in ourselves, but because, as the Bible tells us in Philippians 2.13, and this is a verse that most of us are familiar with, it reads as follows shuffling through my notes here. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his, don't miss the last two words, good pleasure. For his good pleasure. It is God's purpose for working in our lives to give glory to him and for his good pleasure. And finishing, which is his body, the fullness of him fulfills all in all. I know I haven't done this passage full justice. There's so much you could do here. You break this into several weeks of study. But I hope it's reminded you that when Paul looks at the Ephesian believers, this is not exceptional or something rare. If he were here today, hopefully he could say, I look at the believers at 
Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, whatever church, whatever denomination, where people name the name of Christ, and I see faith, love, and hope existent in their lives. And it causes us, to, I think, to pause to give examination. How are we growing in our faith? Are we, are, is our faith more evident in our lives? Do we think more about our relationship with the Trinitarian God whom we say we believe in, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Are we growing in love? might be a good time to remind you because there are people who will say, well, doctrine and love, they're incompatible. Uh, let's look at what 1 Corinthians says. Interestingly enough, you have to read 1 Corinthians 13 to find out what love is, and by virtue of that, that makes it doctrine, right? Okay? Otherwise, love can be anything you want. Listen to what love is. And I had a gentleman in college challenge me with this. He said, put your name in wherever it says love. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. This is pretty convicting. And kind, love does not envy or boast. Again, if you insert your name like I'm doing right now, it's pretty convicting. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. Do we always rejoice with the truth? Are we always lacking arrogance? Do we lack envy? No, we have to admit we're all that, right? We have to repent of those things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. And on down the page, of course, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And finally, of course, hope, the idea that our hope in Christ as we mature in our faith daily should be more and more uh, real to us. More and more, we should have more, greater confidence, not because of what we've done, but because of the Savior who has saved us that our hope is in him and him alone, in what the Trinitarian God has done and is doing in our lives. We praise the Father, we praise the Son, we praise the Holy Spirit, who's transforming us daily. I'd like to give you a minute just to think and bow your heads, and I'm going to do the same thing, and, and ask the Lord, Lord, uh, work in my life to increase my love, my faith, my hope, not through anything that I can muster up, but through reading the scripture, through fellowshipping, through communion, through whatever means he has given us of spiritual grace, through the Holy Spirit, of course, to transform us. And we are people who are totally reliant upon our God. We cannot produce this on our own. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray, and I will close us. Heavenly Father, we are terribly needy people. We do not deserve your grace. We cannot muster up in our hearts love, faith, and hope. That if the Apostle Paul were here, or you, Lord, were here, of course you are in our presence, but if Jesus were physically present here with us, would say, hey, look at what great faith, love, and hope they are exhibiting. We recognize that to exhibit these qualities, we need your spirit to work in our lives. We are reminded that, uh, again, we cannot produce this on our own, so we pray for your spirit to work mightily to transform us. Most of all, though, I pray that the faith, hope, and love that we exhibit are present because we have our eyes fixed firmly on you, Lord, and we want to do your will, your purpose, for your glory, not for our own merit 
or benefit, not for anything we might gain from it, but because we do it to praise you, our maker, our creator, our sustainer, our savior, our redeemer, all the words, our purpose in life. Lord, we thank you for this time we have together this morning. And thank you for your word as it is proclaimed. In Jesus' name.